Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. If you're a regular listener of The Fullest Podcast or a reader at thefullest.com, then you probably know I'm really passionate about living a non-toxic lifestyle. And this includes not just what I put in or on my body, it also extends to the products that I use in my home. And traditional home scenting products just mask odors using chemicals and synthetic fragrances, which can be super harmful to breathe in on a daily basis. So I'm super happy and excited to announce our recent partnership with Vitruvi, a brand that creates beautiful diffusers and non-toxic essential oils naturally and safely scenting your space. Unlike most diffusers, Vitruvi diffusers are crafted using the highest quality porcelain. They're gorgeous and they double as sophisticated pieces of decor in your home. Vitruvi also blends unique aromas to help you set the mood as well. So I'm really excited that they're offering fullest listeners and readers 20% off. All you have to do is go to their website and use code THEFULLEST at checkout and you get your 20% off for first time orders. So let me know what you think, check them out. I'm really, really passionate about using aromatherapy when you're stressed out, when you're feeling bummed or just need something to light up your day. It's really, really powerful and it makes you just feel great. So let me know what you think, 20% off using code THEFULLEST. I'm really excited to be offering this to you guys. Thanks so much. Hi, Dr. Pejman. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Happy to be here. You might hear my son in the background. He's with his dad, <laughs> but obviously being home, we I'm just trying to find different places to hide during these phone calls. <laughs> I've, I've had uh, uh, visitors... Uh... Inter, uh, interject themselves uh, into my call. So I totally understand. We have a three-year-old who's stepped out right now, but uh, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> well, it's so wonderful to meet you virtually um, today. I am a huge fan of yours. I actually found out about you at Air One because I purchased oh. some of your products. And then I subsequently was just sent some of your emails through some friends of mine that had, you know, been shared them. Um, even friends who don't have children, they've just um, read your emails and felt that I would love it. And then somehow, you know, we're finally here today. And mm -hmm. it's so wonderful to pick your brain during this time. And I really just appreciate everything that you've put out for people oh. to listen to, because it's just so inspiring. And in this during this time that a lot of people are just afraid. Um, they really are. Everyone's just terrified of each other of the unpredictable nature of what's going on but we're now we're how i believe in california um five six weeks into this now into a mm -hmm. shelter in place obviously we've been you know hearing about coronavirus for much longer but in the beginning um it was you know the unpredictable nature of it was more terrifying. I felt scared and I'm, I'm someone who feels very empowered, um, to take my health into my own hands and the health of my family. I feel very blessed to be able to have access to wonderful, um, doctors. And so I'm 
I feel very blessed that, you know, to have access to people like you or like Dr. Sammy or Dr. Sadegi, right? That I can learn from you guys. I can share your information, but not everyone um, has access to even the information. So that's yeah. really why we're here today is to get this information out and to hear more about you, your background and, um, and your thoughts on this. Cause I've heard you speak about, you know, who is more susceptible to this? Who should we be worried about and, yeah. and what we can do? So I'd yeah. love to start with um, just you, a little bit about you and your background. Well, well, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for being a conduit for this information. Because I mean, at the end of the day, I think information and getting it in the hands of people is all that matters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we see is this one-sided discussion. It's not to say one side is wrong, but I think when there's only one side to a discussion, then the discussion becomes unbalanced. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, it's just about bringing balance to the discussion and having people think for themselves. And you know, one of the things that I've really realized is my job needs to be and is more to give people information for them to help up make their own minds rather than necessarily having to impose my opinions onto people. Yeah. Um, in terms of my background, uh, I'm a pediatrician that's now been in practice since 2006. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and during this time, uh, what I've done is spent about a decade training. So uh, I'm, I'm an oddball because uh, I've done two fellowships in integrative medicine. And all of this has really been because I'm one of those people that just keeps asking questions and mm -hmm. it drives my poor wife crazy because it's yeah. like, well, why is this happening? Why is that happening? You yeah. know, and that's just my brain. It's just constantly asking questions of why does this happen? Why does this child end up with this issue? And for me, when I get to a place where I don't understand why something ha is happening to a child, uh, there's this in intuitive uh, drive to go find the answers. And that's really why I've done this absurd amount of training. So I'm trained as a medical herbalist. I'm trained to uh, treat children with autism. I used to treat adults with autoimmune conditions and learned all about the functional medicine. And one thing that I learned over time is that every single piece of medicine has a time in place. There are times conventional medicine is amazing and it is my first go-to. And there are times that herbs and essential oils are my go-to and sometimes supplements are my go-to and sometimes nutrition is. And I just look at it as simply the more you understand about how to use everything without being necessarily biased, without necessarily saying, oh, this one's better than that, but you understand the pros and cons of everything, you're just more enabled and capable of serving people. And that's really how I see my practice, mm -hmm. just having more tools to bring to the table and to the discussion of uh, being of service. And I think in the midst of you know this decade plus of training and asking questions, part of how my brain has just become wired is to really probe into you know more subtle elements of human physiology and when conditions and issues arise to ask, well, why does this happen? And why does that happen? And, you know, in, in the case of coronavirus, you know, it, it, the question that I started asking myself from the moment that it hit China was like, okay, well, some people are falling apart. Some people are not. What is it about those people versus others? And I don't think we still have all the answers, but there are some pieces of data that have come up that suggest that, for instance, oxidative stress or excess inflammation 
may be one of the underlying factors of why these people ultimately suffer and why some people go into, you know, this respiratory distress syndrome where these poor people literally can't breathe. And that that lack of ability to breathe is part of why these poor people ultimately pass. And th- there are multiple studies from prior uh, the prior SARS virus and you know, some new data that's coming out that suggests that that is one of the underlying reasons. So it's it's this constant questioning. And why is this happen? Why does that happen? And that's really what I hope to bring to the conversation today and help your audience ask questions for themselves. Yeah, I think that's great. That's really what we're all about as a platform is helping people think for themselves. So you nailed it right there. Um, <laughs> I have several questions. And so we'll, you know, we'll try and get to those. So basically, I want to know why our kids, I don't know if you know the answer, but as a pediatrician, maybe you have an idea of what makes it. I mean, normally, when you look at the flu or whatever, they say kids and elderly. So why is it that kids aren't really part of this um, conversation? It's a a really good question. And, uh, you know, as a pediatrician, one of the first things that stood out to me was that because if kids were getting affected, I I would be very paranoid because we have two kids of our own. We have a four month old at home. And and obviously I'm, I'm in responsible for the care of all of these children in my practice. And knock wood, uh, kids actually do quite well. I don't think we entirely know. Uh, There's a lot of ideas. For instance, the the virus uses this ACE uh, receptor. It's an angiotensin receptor, which ultimately is involved with blood pressure and other things like that. But it uses that receptor as one way of getting into the cell. And the notion that people have right now is for whatever reason, these receptors in children are different. Uh, And that that kind of makes sense because you don't really see blood pressure issues in children. You don't see a lot of the adult kind of mediated diseases that you see in children. So that's the primary reason why we think that happens. We also understand that children have different levels of melatonin, which is one reason why people hypothesize maybe part of why the virus doesn't impact children. Uh, Children have much higher levels of glutathione, so their antioxidant levels and their antioxidant state is generally different than adults, especially the elderly. And when you go and look at the data, you'll see that melatonin, glutathione, a lot of these compounds change over time and really drop over time. And Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably one of the reasons, you know, why aging actually happens. But it's probably some combination of these, but in at least the, the medical world, the primary explanation is that children have a different receptor on their cells. So literally the virus just can't infect them the same way as it infects the elderly, especially. That's incredible. I mean, it, it really does give me so much more peace. I have a son who has, um, he has a metabolic condition that we found out about when he was four days old called MCAD. I don't know if Mm. you've heard of it, but it's very rare. um, And he can't process MCTs. And so if he goes into ketosis, it it can be fatal. And so luckily, I have a background in understanding nutrition, understanding how difficult it is to go into ketosis. Obviously, if you're a child, it's so much easier. But like, as he grows up, he can go longer stretches without eating. But um, it, it's made me so much more aware of just the fact that everyone is different. And, you know, it wasn't until the late 90s or around 90s, I think that 
they um, had this test mandated in California. So that that's how they found out about it. But, you know, there are so many people, me, I was never tested for it. Who knew? Like, I don't have it. I'm a carrier. But there are so many people walking around that don't understand how different we all are and what we are each susceptible to. And, and we then go on extreme diets, like I, you know, the keto diet. And that, if my son didn't know, if he was never tested, he could be really sick. If later on, he was like, I'm going to lose a bunch of weight and I'm going to go get, you know, super fit and do keto Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things. The reason I'm bringing this up is because of the idea that um, mainstream media and our pharmaceutical industry believe that there is such thing as um, one size fits all medicine. And that is in the form of right now prevention in the form of vaccines. And it's just terrifying to think that that is something that, I mean, right now, a lot of doctors have right in the state of California given up their rights to to say whether or not they believe that a child in their practice should not be vaccinated. That's happening so, right now, right? So they passed a law, uh, which basically, uh, so physicians can still write medical exemptions. Uh, we're limited to five medical exemptions per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes it tricky is that unlike before, where we just wrote the medical exemption, and as long as the, you know there was just medical justification, then the medical exemption stood. Uh, what has happened since then is that uh, process has now been handed to the state in terms of approval. So mm-hmm. we can still write a medical exemption, and you know if we had a handful of children in our practice where you know there was very clear reason that they would be significantly harmed, like they had a horrible reaction to a prior vaccine and they needed the same vaccine again. You know, that would be a very clear indication by the CDC standards that that child shouldn't get the vaccine. Outside of that, in terms of more subtle, you know, reasons why someone shouldn't be getting the vaccine, that's where things get kind of tricky because, uh, you know, depending on on your perspective, depending on your medical opinion, you know, some physicians only believe that those children who have had a severe reaction should be exempted and then there are others that believe that, you know, if a child has, for instance, a metabolic condition, that those children may be at higher risk of having complications. And there's mm-hmm. some data to suggest that. Uh, and therefore, children with various kinds of metabolic diseases and mitochondrial errors shouldn't be getting vaccines. And th- that is where things get tricky, because by the CDC standards, those are not recognized contraindications. So the ability to write medical exemptions has been significantly limited, and now it is under the, the, the purview of, of the California Public Health Department to mm-hmm. determine who should get it or not. And is it true that if you write a vaccine that they believe um, shouldn't, or write an exemption that they don't believe should have been given, do you, as a physician, are you under review? Or- so if you write three of them that uh, are, or more than five, but if you write three that they say, well, this was completely bogus, after the third one, then they will put you under review and they can report you to the medical board for writing inappropriate medical exemptions. So that, that is their right. And that, that's why most of us have decided basically at this point moving forward, uh, unless there's a very, very clear 
uh, CDC indicated contraindication that we won't be writing medical exemptions because it ultimately puts our ability to practice medicine at, in, uh, at harm. And I mean, you kind of answered this, but how does that make you feel? I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because uh, I think there are many of us who believe that some children uh, may be harmed in getting a vaccine. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, we can only do what the law allows us to do. Mm -hmm. So um, going back to this idea of mandated vaccines and why it's so important that people have the choice and um, mandated in terms of you know, not just children now, we're talking about the entire population here that could potentially um, have to or be forced to get the, let's say, coronavirus vaccine. That could be the first one since everyone, it's, it almost feels like everyone's just waiting inside of their house until this vaccine is created. And then once the vaccine is created, that's, um, that'll help us go back to how things are normally because now we have this idea of herd immunity, right? right? But can you tell us a little bit about um, natural herd immunity and the difference between natural and induced with vaccines and, and also just what, can you know, can you comment on this? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think Sweden is actually a, a perfect example. Uh, so their public health official uh, decided that waiting a year for any kind of pharmaceutical intervention was way too long. And uh, he decided to take a very different approach and basically did not shut down Sweden's society and allowed people to continue congregating and socializing as they normally did, which a lot of people have considered very radical and you know, potentially dangerous. And I think for all your viewers, they should be watching you know, any news coming out of Sweden for the next three to four weeks. Uh, because we will find by the end of that period of time, if that public health uh, official, Dr. Tingle, I believe, uh, was either absolutely crazy and, you know, he has committed tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of his population. And Sweden has about a population of 10 million mm -hmm. to death, uh, which is what some people speculate. Or Dr. Tingle is, is an absolute genius, and he understood this virus process differently than others. And through his understanding, he has allowed Sweden to actually navigate these waters in a very methodical way so that they come out and ultimately have a certain degree of protection against this virus naturally derived through infection so that they don't get second and third waves of this virus as other parts of the world will. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in a very, very simplistic fashion, the way to look at immunity and herd immunity is the body ultimately sees the virus and the, and the vaccines, basically the vaccines selectively present one piece of information from the virus. So some kind of protein, some kind of compound or chemical from the virus that would otherwise infect us. And it basically informs the immune system that, hey, this virus is lurking around, become alert to it. So if you see it, then you eliminate it before it has a chance to cause a problem. So it's like having a security team, except the security team doesn't know to look for a weird threat mm -hmm. that maybe, you know, the guys are camouflaged and they've never seen a threat that's camouflaged. So the camouflage, you know, intruders would be able to break into your body if your security team was not aware of it. And the vaccines would basically give them, hey, 
This is how the mask of these intruders looks like. If you ever see that mask moving around, attack it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Through natural immunity, obviously, if we get exposed to the virus and then we don't die from the virus, uh, then what would happen is, at least at a theoretical level, and this is the part that gets kind of tricky, uh, the body in clearing the infection would then create antibodies, uh, so similar kind of thing, uh, immune alertness to the virus. So if we were to get exposed to that same virus again, next time around the body says, oh, I know you, and no, you're not coming into the body, and basically eliminates the small amounts of the virus that have been exposed to us very early on, so we essentially don't get an infection. Mm -hmm. The argument that the public health people are making is that they don't know and, frankly, they don't believe that natural herd herd immunity is possible against this virus. Um, And what's interesting is, at least in some of the families that I care for, uh, and there are some where I was absolutely convinced and they were absolutely convinced that they got the infection. And at least when we did uh, antibody testing via these little kits at home, uh, in one family, half of them had it and it was very clear they had it. And then the other half didn't have it, which was really weird. Uh, And then in in another case, it was that the family that we think were families, several of them, that we think were exposed didn't show it on that test. Now, is it that the test was defective? It's possible. I've actually questioned this, and I've all of our families know that the tests we had were not 100% accurate. But in one, in one family where half of them uh, got it and were positive, the other half, which we think were exposed, were negative, it begs the question of, does the immune system fully respond to this? The people that are negative, do they still have protection? You know, and th- this is where there are a lot of unknowns and that that's where the conversation gets really, really complicated. Uh, but I think going back to, you know, the conversation in Sweden, right now, the public health expert, at least when I last, last checked about a week ago, believed that about 25% of their population had already been infected by this virus. They believe that somewhere around 60% is the kind of the magic number, at least from what I've read, that with the coronavirus, if 60% of the population has been infected and developed immunity, that's when you get herd immunity, which basically means so few people would be passing that virus around because now they have the protection against it, that the rest of the population will basically be okay because if the virus can't skip from person to person to person because the larger majority of the people are no longer getting infected or passing it, then the minority of the population will be protected by the majority, which is essentially the experiment that Sweden is running. Mm-hmm. Um, how things will shake out, how things will play out will be really interesting. Um, one of the things that I think is worth your audience considering is. Uh, And this is information that we're still really coming to grips with. But uh, some folks out of Stanford did antibody testing of people in various parts of California, for instance, Fremont. Uh, And what they found, surprisingly, was that there were more people who had antibodies against the coronavirus than expected, um, which suggests that possibly, and would you step back for a second, sorry to jump around a little bit, but when you step back, especially in places like Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco, 
there are a lot of Chinese tourists, a lot of Chinese travelers, right? People that come and go. And what these researchers actually did was they mapped things out and they found that people from the Wuhan region were actually traveling to LA and possibly San Francisco well before we even knew we had coronavirus. Yeah. So possibly as early as January, we actually had people coming from that region. And we know that by January, uh, coronavirus was really kind of amping up in China. So it's possible that the coronavirus landed in places like LA and San Francisco and California well before we knew it. And theoretically, and that these are all unknowns, and these are really questions that I think your audience should be asking themselves. If coronavirus was in LA and San Francisco starting in, let's say, early January, and we didn't lock down until March, yeah. early March, right? Mm-hmm. So for that, one, let's say, one and a half month period of time, just to be conservative, if people were passing it around unknowingly, and I, as a physician, the only thing I can say was that from mid-January until late February, I kept telling myself, like, God, you know, in this last decade of seeing influenza, this has been the worst flu season that I've ever seen. Like, mm-hmm. we would have families where the kids and, and the parents were having, like, seven days of fevers, which flu typically doesn't cause flu is usually more like five days fevers. They were having nasty coughing spells. And I was like, God, this is the weird, literally, I kept telling myself and I kept telling the families, like, this is the worst flu season I've ever seen. I don't know what the hell is going on because I didn't think coronavirus was here. Yeah. So it it really has me asking myself and these Stanford folks are asking the same question. And honestly, I don't think we have the data. So this isn't to say this is the truth, but I think it's a question worth asking Did California in Los Angeles and San Francisco as two big cities already get exposed? And do we already have 30, 40% of our population already exposed and potentially immune to this virus, which then actually changes kind of how we are needing to look at this virus. Uh, I agree with where the you know public health officials stand because obviously we don't have any conclusive data to say this is the case. So we obviously have to be careful. But you know, I for one am really interested to see if this second peak that they're saying will happen in California and Los Angeles will ever show up. Because yeah. uh, once we actually let people go back to their normal lives, And they say, well, people are going to go out and then they're going to have to come back in because we're going to get a second wave. But if people were exposed, and it's a big if, we don't know, but if your audience wants to think about this, if people were exposed, if enough people developed antibodies, and that is true, and it's a hypothesis, we don't know, then it may be that come two or three months from now, all of a sudden we'll we'll see a few little cases of people getting infected. But this catastrophic rise in the number of infected and deaths may actually not show up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another really interesting thing that I think is worth your audience looking at and thinking about is actually New York. So, I mean, the stories you hear out of New York are, are straight out of a nightmare, right? Yeah. It's, it's the most awful, 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 awful thing that you can possibly ever imagine. And it, it's truly a nightmare. And there are 17,000 plus people that have perished in New York, which is 
terrifying to think about. Mm -hmm. And I know in my practice, people know people who have passed friends, family. And every time I hear the story, you know, I, I, I tears come and I'm, I'm to- truly saddened. And for me, w- between my wife and I, we have people in New York City, we have people in New York State, we have people in New Jersey. So there's, there's a part of us who's like, oh my God, are any of these people going to get it? And a few of our family members are medically fragile, where one of them is getting chemo, where if, if these people got coronavirus, it would probably spell you know, their end. Yeah. So, you know, I personally and my wife together, we have a lot of concern about what is happening in New York. At the same time, there's something that I want your audience members to ask themselves. So New York State has a population of about 20 million people. If you go on their MTA website, so this is their public transportation website, what they state in very clear numbers is that somewhere around five and a half approximated million people were riding their subway system every day. Mm-hmm. Five and a half million people were riding the New York subways every day. And then if you step back for one second and just ask the question, okay, what kind of surfaces are in the subways, right? It's metal, metal mm-hmm. with plastic. And we know that in metal and plastic, the virus sits on this surface for three days. You, you stand back. I, I'm sure you've been on the New York subways at some point, right? Yeah, yeah. So people are packed in like sardines, right? Mm-hmm. You're maybe, if you're lucky, you're two feet away from people. Usually it's, it's a foot. So yeah. this, this social distancing of six feet versus 10 feet, you know, forget about it. Back then, before people knew, I mean, everyone was up in each other's face. No one was wearing masks. You know, you touched the... the the, the places to hold on to, whatever else someone else was touching it 15 seconds later, people mm-hmm. were brushing up against each other. And that's just New York life. And then you think about taxi cabs, you think about Ubers, you think about buses. You know, ultimately, there were millions upon millions of people going in and out of these different vectors of transportation every day. And when I looked, so the Blasio said that their first confirmed case of COVID-19 in New York City was March the 1st. We don't know exactly when the virus arrived in New York City, but let's say March the 1st was the first day that we know that someone was sick. And they didn't lock the city down until almost three weeks later. So there was about 20 days, give or take, where the virus had a chance to spread. And it could have spread and probably spread through the subway system, right? Because there were at least a handful of people, if not tens of thousands of people that had contracted this virus. Because we know it spreads like wildfire. One person passes it on to two others and it just keeps increasing exponentially. Yeah. So one of the things that I want your audience members to ask is if they stood back and just did the math for themselves, I'm not going to speculate what number this is. It's not my place because I don't have confirm data to say anything. But I just want people to hypothesize for themselves. If there were five and a half million people just through the subways, we add the buses and everything else, that number gets higher. But five and a half million people per day going through this system, where chances are the virus was living on surfaces, it was living in people who were spreading it to other people as silent carriers, because we know that people early on don't have symptoms. We know young people never develop symptoms for the most part. 
How many people in New York State may have been exposed? And in this course of time, how many people may have ultimately developed immunity? And is it possible that New York State has already reached the place where they have developed herd immunity unknowingly? Mm -hmm. We don't know. We, We really don't know. And I don't think we will know for a period of time. But just like with Sweden, and frankly, in my own state here in California, one of the things that I've, I'm really curious about and what I'm scanning the news for is in about one or two months' time, when New York City and state ultimately open back up, will they start seeing a resurgence in the number of deaths and in the number of infected? Mm-hmm. And there's a possibility that they will not that all of a sudden their numbers keep coming down and they keep coming down and they keep coming down and they keep coming down. And then it it just stays in a low baseline number and actually doesn't spike back up, which would actually suggest that herd immunity was already established. The majority or enough people in the population already got the infection, produced protection against it, and are no longer passing it back and forth. I I think to, to answer the question about how does herd immunity work? How significant is it? How helpful is it? Every single person watching this show and every person kind of, you know, looking and asking the question about vaccines and how will all of this work, they should be watching Sweden, they should be watching the future of California and watching the future of New York. And between these three, essentially, one of them is an intentional experiment. Sweden is intentionally going through it. I think in California and New York, it was kind of unintentional. It just happened before anyone got smart enough to know it was happening. Mm-hmm. But in these different scenarios, if at least New York and Sweden just kind of ride out and the worst is kind of behind them, then it actually suggests that maybe natural herd immunity, natural exposure to this virus does pro- offer protection And the vaccine becomes less necessary because people are becoming immune to it. So, And this is where the conversation gets really complicated because these are factors that we really honestly don't know. And, you know, people say, well, the virus may change and the virus may mutate, just like how influenza mutates. And if you have uh, antibodies against the prior version of it, you may not have antibodies against the newer version, which is a really good argument. Mm-hmm. Or that people produce antibodies, but these antibodies only last for a month or two, and then they just go away and people are no longer immune in the future. So these are really good questions that people are asking, and we, we don't have the answer to it. Uh, and that's why, you know, I, for one, am going to really watch closely in these different pockets to see what happens. Because if six months, a year from now, Sweden is still humming along and, you know, they, they see 10, 20 deaths, you know, per day, if that, which is all sadly pretty normal, Mm -hmm. then it suggests that, you know what, these worries about will the antibody response last may not be such a big deal. The worry about the virus mutating and people not being able to handle it may not be a big deal. We don't know. And I think anyone that says definitively one way or another, oh, no, this is impossible or this is totally possible is is kind of, you know, talking out of their rear end because we don't know. Yeah. But I think one thing for people to ask themselves also is there are a lot of unknowns about the viruses themselves. Right. We've never had a vaccine for coronavirus, which is one of the common cold viruses. Mm -hmm. Right. 
They've never really been able to produce a vaccine for it because these viruses are constantly changing. So one, if, if they are using vaccine technology that's already existing and they produced a, v- a vaccine to the current virus, right, the COVID-19 in its current form without any mutations, if the virus mutates, then how will that vaccine be protective of the future version? And if it's not protective of the future version, then are we going to play a game of whack-a-mole where every six months a new vaccine has to get pumped out and you have to get a vaccine because the virus is mutated? And is that something that, that is desirable? For some people, it may absolutely be desirable. And you know, for them, getting protection at whatever cost is, is perfect. And I think that should be a great choice for people to have. I think there may be other people that, that think about that scenario and really... Again, I, I just want to ask questions. I, I, I want to help people ask questions for themselves and derive their own thoughts and derive their own conclusions of what they think is right for them. Yeah. But uh, if that's the case, then for some people, they may say, you know what, if I have to get a vaccine every six to 12 months, that, that, that's actually not a good option for me. And I don't want that. Another question that I think is, is worth asking We know through the vaccine pipelines, they're now looking at bringing new technology, which is more advanced vaccine technology, to the table. Because, again, the likelihood of prior vaccine technology working against this virus that may mutate and change quickly may not be such a great thing. And we want a vaccine that once it it is injected actually provides immunity and protection against future viruses or future strains and future mutations of this virus. That also means that we are introducing a brand new technology, right? Yeah. It's the vaccine technology that we just simply don't know much about. It could be amazing. It could be perfect. It could be without any side effects and it could do everything that we expected to do and more and be, you know, literally the best piece of pharmaceutical technology that's ever been created. And that's entirely possible. We also may not know if this vaccine produces unwanted side effects in the future Mm -hmm. because we simply don't have a track record of it, right? Uh, As one example, for instance, with uh, one of the prior rotavirus vaccines, when it first came to market, It worked really well until about, I think it was a year or two after it was introduced, where they realized that it was causing intussusception. And this is widely known. So this isn't anything crazy, you know, for us to talk about. This is very widely known. Every doctor that's been in practice knows this. And they ultimately had to pull this vaccine off the market because basically it was causing the intestines to go into themselves. And when that happens, that's actually a very dangerous problem to have. And they ultimately had to reformulate the vaccine so that it wasn't causing that issue. And the current vaccine, you know, in all the studies they've done, is no longer causing that issue, fortunately. But it also means that when a brand new technology, when a brand new vaccine, when a brand new tool comes, until we've had a chance to study it for six months, 12 months, one year, two years, we don't entirely know everything there is to know about that technology, right? Yeah. And it's not to say that technology is bad. It's not to say the technology is good. It's not to say, you know, it's evil. There's, there's, 
no, no politics or bias here. It's just simply to ask the question of, okay, a brand new, you know, it's like buying a brand new model car, mm-hmm. uh, eons ago, God, yeah. this is probably 10 years ago, no more, uh, more like 15 years ago. Um, I had saved up a lot of money and I was dying to buy the brand new Nissan Z that came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then I was all into sports cars and <laughs> the, I, that was the car that I was just dying to have. And I've mm-hmm. been saving money for a long time to get it. And I got the car and I loved the car until about six months into the car or driving it, I, I realized that the transmission wasn't working. And it turns out that there was actually a massive defect in that transmission of that brand new model. And Nissan had actually pulled out, done a recall, and they were changing the transmissions on those Nissan Zs because in some cases, the transmissions were having problems. You know, if the human body was a car and you can just do a recall and just take out something and replace it with something else and just fix it, obviously it would be really easy because then we wouldn't be stressed. The human body doesn't really work in that way, right? You can't really recall something out of the human body once it's gone in. Yeah. And once something has been introduced, whether it's injected or consumed or whatever else, it's in there and it's it's permanent. So... It, you know, it brings another question of, well, if there's a, if we have to introduce new vaccine technology because this virus is going to mutate and change rather quickly, how quickly do we want to introduce that exactly. technology? And how long do we want to study it for to truly understand its effects and safety profile and so forth before it's introduced? And I think these are all things that a lot of scientists are grappling with. And and you'll see, even in in the conventional medical uh, journalism and media, there there are doctors, very conventional CDC-trained doctors that are saying, we've got to take our time with this vaccine. Like, this can't be a vaccine we push out in a month and just dump it into the population. Because those doctors are asking exactly the same question of, well, we don't know. We, we don't know. We need to study. We need to understand. We need to really wrap our head around this new tool to really see how, to, how it should be used, how safe it is, and so forth. And, you know, these are all the questions that I think everyone should be asking, whether you're a physician, you're a patient, you're, you're pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine. I think, you know, none of these things are... Uh, that important because I think as human beings, we just need to be asking these. And these are conversations that I have with my wife. I saw, I know that you saw in the newsletters, these are questions that I'm having our families ask themselves. Yeah. Um, Because the more we we think about things, the more we talk about things, the more informed we become. And that's really what I think things need to be about, just people becoming informed for themselves. I think so too. And um, a couple things on what you said. So with, I, you know, a little while back, I read an article that had come out from the New York Times talking about the polio vaccine and how um, in Africa, we've actually more people have gone hurt from the wild polio vaccine than contracting polio on their own. So like you're saying, I mean, people, I think it's important that people are aware that just because you're injecting something in your body that you think is going to keep you safe from one thing, it could cause so many other reactions and everyone should just do their own homework and really have like a pro versus con sheet in their house saying, okay, like, what are the reasons why I'm taking this? What are the reasons why I maybe wouldn't want to? What are the 
side effects of this? Do I have an autoimmune condition? Could this make my autoimmune condition worse? Like what are, what do I currently have? And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we go into a doctor's office and, and they just give it to us. And we just like my mom, she was just, um, she has a, she's hypothyroid. So she went to this doctor who she waited months to see. And, um, she could, she, she went and she really liked her, um, her appointment. But what happened was a nurse came in and they made her feel like if she didn't get the flu vaccine before she left, um, she, she didn't even know that she had an option. She basically thought she, it was mandatory to get a flu vaccine and she didn't have, um, you know, the, the idea of maybe even asking a question, am I supposed to get this? Do I have to, she just did it because they told her to do it. And for her, you know, she, she loves following along with what a doctor tells her and she really believes in what they, um, want her to do. But I believe that you should have a second opinion at all times, or you should just think about things and not just make, you know, decisions like that in your body. But I also, um, I err on that side at all times. I I'm more of do less and think about it a little more. And I just think as a society, we're so quick to, um, just think we need to, we just want to sterilize everything. I mean, we're afraid of nature at this point. We don't go outside. Most people aren't able to go outside right now. They might not have yards. They might, maybe they can go on a walk, but maybe they're scared of seeing other people. And so we're just cooped up in our homes. Um, as many of us know, the air indoor quality, um, of air is actually much much worse than the quality of air outside our homes. And we're just like sitting and watching Netflix and afraid and, and it makes, it breaks my heart because again, it's taking away, um, this idea of feeling empowered and having choice and feeling that you're going to be okay because we're constantly watching the news and this goes, sorry, I'm like going on so many tangents, but this goes into like the Sweden thing, right? Like I've been following along Sweden, but how many media outlets there are that are contradicting each other. And so many outlets are saying Sweden's regretting what they're doing. Or then you have someone else saying, oh my gosh, Sweden is getting herd immunity. The curve is flattening there. Um, this is awesome. And I have a friend that lives in Sweden and she's telling me I'm getting it. Like I'm trying to get it from the source. And she's like, Oh my gosh, it's amazing. Um, Sweden, we don't have news that makes us afraid of going mm -hmm. outside. Um, she's obviously very realistic. She says, you know, we have, we basically have the population of LA and all of Sweden. So we are already pretty spread out. So that does help us a lot, but not, nothing's really closed. I mean, they have recommendations or they have certain guidelines that they've placed on people who may have health issues. But for the most part, like you're saying, it's basically open and it's amazing to see what a country is doing, but because the rest, and it's so crazy. It's not just the United States. The rest of the entire world is going on an opposite like experiment. Yeah. And I don't know yeah. if that's what you had said. Like this is one mass experiment. It is, it is. And you know, th th this is where I really, really want everyone to start thinking for themselves. 
And th- this is where when you step outside of the box, because sadly in the U.S. and I think probably around the world, the media is just for whatever reason consumed with fear. Mm-hmm. You know, and everything is presented only in the fear-based perspective. And I, I think we need to be very careful about this virus. You know, I, I get it. Like, I have people around me that may get this virus and die. So uh, I think there's no question that we need to be careful. There's no question we need to be aware and we need to be concerned. Like, anyone that's not aware or concerned and being careful is is being reckless to some extent. Mm-hmm. But... You know, for instance, there are all of these news articles that talk about, oh, my God, Sweden's death rate is 10 times higher than, you know, other Scandinavian countries. Well, yes, because Sweden has also opened up their society. And while other countries may have 5% of their population that has been infected, Sweden may have 25 or 30% of their population that's infected. And when you start looking at the data in that way, and that's why I, I, I asked your audience, I ask all of you to look at New York because the number of deaths they have is really awful. But I think that the part that we need to ask, and this is a simple math equation, right? There's always the numerator, the number on top, and then there's the denominator, Mm -hmm. right? The number on the bottom, right? And one over two is 50%. -hmm. If there's 17,000 people that have died, or in the case of Sweden, I think there's somewhere around 2,000, in, in the case of Sweden, for instance, if there's 2,000 people who have perished and their public health epidemiology chief was really clear to say that most of the people who have passed in Sweden were the poor people, they were in the nursing homes. And from his perspective, these poor people were going to get it anyways. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of rationalizing it like, well, the virus is going to hit those vulnerable anyways, regardless of what I do. And if you ask, well, 2,000 divided by 2 million or 3 million, what number does that create? And if you look at it in that sense, it, you, you guys all do the math for yourself. I'm not even going to speculate or, or suggest. But consider that the death rate from influenza, and this is well-documented, well-published, the death rate from influenza is 0.1%. So one out of every 1,000 people that get influenza and sadly, in children, young children, adults, it's, it's kind of normal. And then in the elderly, it spikes up. But generally speaking, one in a thousand people ultimately perish if they get influenza in a given year. So if you do 2,000 people in Sweden and then put the denominator as 2 million or 3 million, we don't know the exact number, but their epidemiology chief believes that it's somewhere around 2 to 3 million. What percentage does that give you? And if you look at it in that light, with those comparisons of percentages, influenza 0.1%, you do the math for yourself with this. What does that give us? And then in that scenario, how should we be looking at the coronavirus as, as a comparison to what we commonly know as the flu. Mm-hmm. So it, it's these kinds of things where you can't say, well, Sweden has 10 times or five times the number of deaths in comparison to fill in the blank, Finland or wherever else. Yes, of course, because they're, they're handling it differently. And there are two different scenarios. You can't compare an orange to an apple. But you can dig into the apple and break down the statistics in the apple. And I think as every single person out there starts 
formulating their own ideas, starts looking at the statistics in their own head, in their own eyes, that's where really interesting things can happen and everyone can start drawing their own conclusions. And part of what I have found really frustrating is it seems that right now we have equated people thinking for themselves as something that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, and th- this is the part that, that completely confuses me because, you know, why is independent thought a scary or dangerous thing? How, how does independent thought kill someone? You know, uh, you, you've seen this entire time. I've never said for anyone to disrespect the law. I've never said for anyone to go and start congregating. You know, we're not talking about breaking social distancing. We're not talking about not wearing masks. Everyone should follow everything that they're told and that that's totally fine. But why is it that for people to critically look at data and to think about data in a way that's presented other than what they have been told through whatever news channel they're following, why is that a problematic thing? And why is that dangerous? And that this is the part that I frankly don't understand. Uh, so and that's part of why I've decided to you know, speak out when, I, when I'm able to. And I really appreciate you giving me, you know, platform to, to share this message with, because I don't think there's any harm for people to think for themselves. And I think it's actually a great exercise for people to think for themselves and for them to look at the data that's widely available. You don't need to use me as a reference. Everyone can look up every piece of information that I have shared. It's out there. And Use your own mind to ask your own questions and through the questions that you ask, come up with your own answers and through those answers, come to your own conclusion in terms of how worried and fearful, especially you need to be about this virus. Because I personally believe that fear does not necessarily give us any protection. In fact, I think fear is actually limiting our ability to handle this virus if we ever got it. There's a ton of information out there for anyone that wants. If you want to Google chronic stress and immunity, there's one study after another, literally hundreds if not thousands of studies that suggest that chronic fear and chronic stress actually disable, disable our immune system. They compromise our gut immunity. They weaken our total immunity. And if you're in a state of chronic stress and you got hit with this virus, chances are your ability to fight this virus, process this virus, and come out healthy on the other end is less if you were chronically stressed than if you were not. So I, for one, part of what I've been really pushing for the families in my practice is to let go of fear, to let go of stress, because those are not helpful in any way, shape, or form when it comes to our current time and our current challenge in facing this virus. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I think part of doing that means um, distancing ourselves from watching TV all day and reading the headlines and, and being addicted to this number. I mean, I know so many people in my family that are constantly checking the number every hour to see how many deaths there were. And it's like this wheel that they just want to see and they, they get adrenaline from it and then they get afraid. So I completely agree with you. And I think sometimes say speaking up and sharing, um, the opinion of thinking for yourself, like you said, people, um, 
think that you're just going rogue and you're not listening and you think it's all fake. And really it's just about empowering people. Sorry, there's construction next door. Um, empowering people to think for themselves. And I, and I think sometimes people think you're causing more fear by, you know, telling people it's not necessarily that we're saying to not listen. We're just saying, tone it down a bit. So you have peace of mind so that, you know, you can go on a walk outside. And if you go on a walk outside and you're away from all the technology, the world isn't ending. Like you can finally take a deep breath and look at the flowers that are blooming and people's gardens. If you're, you know, fortunate enough to see and be in an area that has that. And, and I just, that's really my intention as well. It's, it's not to place more fear and say, oh my gosh, the government's trying to control you and this is happening and all these things. It's important to be informed of your um, rights and what you are giving up by staying in. I really believe that. I think that, again, we're staying in because we believe in you know, keeping each other safe and we're still learning about this virus. But we also have to know that you know, those are our rights and, and to be aware of the rights that we have. And anyways, I just really appreciate you. I, you know, I was like tearing up in one of your um, emails you had sent, you had said, this is your time to use your voice and speak loudly. And I was just so inspired by that. And I'm so um, happy to have had you here to have met you to know you and and thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be here. And I thank you for just getting this messaging out. And, you know, guys, for those of you that are listening, for those of you that have taken the time, one, I thank you. And two, just realize fear does not serve you in this time. There's nothing beneficial about being in a state of fear. Mm-hmm. Fear will get you to consume more media. People fear will get you glued to this, the TV, which is probably what some of these news channels want. They just want more viewers. Yeah. <laughs> so it drives sales, but really ask yourself and do your own research. You don't have to wor- listen to a single word that I have said. I want you to double check everything that I've said and you will find for yourself the answers, but do a search for chronic stress and immunity. Do a search for chronic fear and immunity. And this is just a Google search you can easily do and you'll see Tons of articles come up. Ask your own questions. Come up with your own answers. And when you do, you may find that what you're being told from the mainstream media may not be necessarily beneficial for you. And this is really what I hope all of us can do. This isn't about, you know, fake news. You know, it's not anything about that. It's about us, you Thinking for yourself and making your own decisions that are best for you with the information that you have taken the time to process for yourself. It's so rare to find a doctor like you, someone who people look up to, who who really brings it back to us and who empowers us and reminds us of our ability to think for ourselves. Thank you so much. Dr. K, and I will make sure that people um, know how to reach you if they're interested in um, speaking with you more. Thank you. Thank you so much.